go. All right, so the first part is the commercial, and then the second part is the real sermon. So I'm with 1016 Recovery Network. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, we are an organization here in the area that helps people that struggle with alcohol and drugs. You uh, may not recognize it or know it, but we were actually started by nine local churches here in this community, including this church. We'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary next year. Um, and just kind of a quick little thing behind our name, because everybody always wants to know what does 1016 stand for? Is it connected to a Bible verse or something along that line? So just real quickly, um, just so you understand uh, where that name kind of comes from, it's the street address is the simple answer, 1016 Eastman Avenue. But the reason that that was selected as our name was twofold. One, we talked to the people that were originally staying there. We started out as a halfway house, and, and we started out with men that were staying there who were trying to rebuild their lives. And so the, the founding board said, what do you think we should call ourselves? Because everyone wants to have some kind of cheesy, inspirational name. And um, they said, you know, because they had seen everything that happened with the zoning committees, because nobody wants us in your backyard. And so they said, whatever you call yourselves, just call us something that doesn't draw any attention to what we do here. We want privacy. We want anonymity. We want confidentiality so we can just do what we need to do. So that's all we ask. At the same time, the, the churches that also gathered some key community stakeholders, and, and um, Sheriff McNutt uh, was with us, Jim McNutt, and he was sheriff at the time. And he happened to mention, you know, we've, we've got these things called 10 codes that we use in our radio communication with police officers. And a 1016 meant that there was an open door at the scene where a road patrol officer was going to go. And if you know your Midland history, the churches had opened the open door a year before, the open door homeless shelter. And they said it is just too providential that our street address would have that kind of meaning. And so we became the 1016 home. And so that's what we stand for, and that's what we do, and that's what we deliver. Basically, um, our mission and why we do what we do um, has to do with the fact that we believe that everyone has the ability to live life to its fullest, totally free and totally clear, free from relying on drugs and alcohol, with a clear mind, a clear heart, a clear body, and an ability to be able to move forward. When I got here in 2003, um, this was what we were doing. This is what we looked like. Uh, we were just here at the 1016 home. We did a little bit of counseling. About 10 years later, we had expanded out to this. We were in about six counties. As a result of, of really kind of a going out, uh, an evangelistic approach to, to kind of seek and save those who struggle, this is who we are now. And we are blessed because of the support and the prayers that we get from this community, from this church who, who was part of that founding, to do what we need to do to go out and, and bring people in and help them rebuild their lives and find new hope and, and new paths for themselves. So um, thank you for supporting 1016 in the ways that you have uh, over the decades. And um, that's a little bit about who we are and what we do. So that doesn't count against my sermon time. So recalibrate. And I'm going to take the brother's five, uh, two minutes that he, he, he lent you so that we can spend some time talking about community, but community with presence, because it has a little bit of a, a different feel and flavor to it. So um, I'm going to open up our Bibles. You can read along if you wish from um, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. 
powerful words of, of the early church. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, kind of like 162 along the Amazon River. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to a breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were done doing those things through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all the proceeds to those as they had need. And day by day, attending to the, at the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so for those of you that, that are a little bit structured, anal in your approach to a sermon, scorekeeping, thinking how much more time is it going to go, three points. Here they are, presence, habit, community. So as we tick down through those things, you can know, okay, we're getting close to the end here. So that's how this is going to roll. One thing that I want to give you is just in terms of understanding the lens of the frame of reference that I often speak to is that um, God made us for a purpose. God made this body for a purpose. He made this with a physical design in mind. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So who I am and how I am wired is all a part of God's plan. And you just need to keep that in mind as we talk about some of the principles and things along that line. So first, let's take a look at this thing called presence. See, when you think about the early church, that Acts 2 church, they were, they were moving forward from the end of Matthew, right? You know, they had Pentecost experience and they had come through. And we focus as a church really on this great commission, right? We think that that's what it's all about. That's what our, our community is all about. That's what should drive us, is that we're supposed to go and make disciples across all the world, right? We're supposed to go to Brazil. We're supposed to go to Haiti. And so we focus on these things. But, you know, there's an end to this section that we kind of glaze over. It's like, oh, yeah, and, and by the way, I'm with you always. We kind of, like, forget it. But you know what? The Great Commission is not the point of Matthew. That's missing the point if you focus on the Great Commission as the whole story. That is not the bow. Because if you understand your gospel, Matthew started this way. At the end of chapter 1, remember this? We're coming to this. And they will call him Emmanuel. Do you remember the rest of the verse? Which means God with us. This is the story of Matthew. This is the point of Matthew is that God is now with us. He's not a pillar. He's not a cloud. He's not a burning bush. And if you go into the Amplified Bible, and if you really look and understand what the Greek means when it talks about I am with you, this just blew me away when I saw this the other day. Literally, it means I am remaining with you perpetually. I am always with you. That was a game changer for me because I had never really made that connection. I, too, just kind of glossed over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, God's with you. 
You know, we always kind of think about it from a, a God's omnipresent kind of a standpoint. But yeah, he's, he's up there, he's above there, he's everywhere, yeah. But it doesn't really impact me because that omnipresence doesn't really require any of my awareness, any of my uh, knowledge of it, because it, it, it still happens, because God is God, right? That's the way he rolls. What this is talking about, what Matthew was emphasizing, and the only way that we can achieve that great commission has to do with God's manifest presence. If you remember your gospel in the book of John, and they talked about how the word became flesh, that mean, meant literally God pitched his tent here. God made himself present here. Not there, here. It's so easy for us to think about God being everywhere. It's so much harder for us to embrace and hold on to the fact that God is here, everywhere that I go. It's that awareness, that awakening of my eyes, the scales kind of falling off my eyes, that God is pushing for in Matthew. And what the Acts 2 church was experiencing was because they had that openness. As I saw that thing about being perpetually with you, I happened to think about my cell phone. And I mean, from a humble, here's the stats. This is on average, on average. Those of us that own cell phones look at that sucker 63 times a day. Spend 171 minutes on it, almost three hours doing FaceTime. 67% of us will look at that puppy, even if there wasn't any notification, any kind of chime, any kind of buzz, any vibration, or just something new. And 69% of us will look at that within five minutes of waking up. I was thinking about it. I'm going to you know, hold it up during my sermon. And it's like, I realized I didn't have it with me. And as we were singing these praise songs, literally, I was panicking. It's like, oh, my God, where's my cell phone? Did somebody steal it? What if I had that same thing for Christ? What if I thought of him, engaged him 63 times a day? What if I spent 171 minutes with him a day? What if I just looked, touched, talked to him without any kind of special notification? Hey, it's Sunday, I got to do that Jesus thing. If, if we somehow we're able to capture that presence and that awareness, maybe we too could be adding 3,000 day by day. Maybe somehow if we can connect with that. And that's what you know kind of leads me to talk about then the power of habits because how I have my relationship with my cell phone is connected to how I'm wired and how my habits work, who I am as a person and how God has made me. So quick little test. Got to figure it out. I didn't tell you what to do. When I showed this to my wife last night, she said, um, you got a typo? <laughs> and then she realized what this was saying. If you think, and I use this in my presentations about um, alcohol and drugs, 
Because for, for me, if I'm an addict or an alcoholic, when I'm in the presence of those things that led me to start using that brokenness, that pain, that shame, that guilt, that fear, whatever it is, in the same way that your body just automatically knows that one words and letters are in front of me, I give it context. It just automatically happens. I don't even consciously think about it. It's not like you even said to yourself, oh, I think I need to read that. Just by that flashing up on your screen, your mind just automatically said, according to Cambridge University, bam, 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 bam. It's my relationship with my phone. That's how we are wired because that's the way God made us. You see, habits, if if you ever want to understand how habits work and how they work in community, there's a great book um, called Charles, uh, by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. And, and he explains, you know, if you think about it, habits really are good and bad. They're neutral. It's just the way that this marvelous computer works because it's both highly efficient, highly intelligent, and highly lazy. Because it doesn't like to work more than it has to. And so if it sees a pattern of something that's going on and it, and it figures out, oh, if I do this, then I get that, then after a while it becomes kind of hardwired and I don't have to think about it anymore. In the same way that, you know, when that thing vibrates, I know something's happened. So I've connected that point. So let's just take uh, like two minutes to learn about how habits work from the author. With the vibrate. Or not. That's a great video. No worries. Worked during rehearsal. There we Thank you. 
I'll say refresh it. So you get it. You know, God has wired us in such a way. He put within our DNA this ability to have those habits for a particular reason. And if we look at those habits of, of, of people who are making that connection with his presence on a regular and consistent basis, these are those habits that we know exist, that we can all claim hold of and we can all kind of build within us. Some of these are individually focused, some are corporately focused, some are both. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you know that if we can ground into a, a, a habit of prayer, if we can ground into a habit of worship, a, a habit of fellowship, that those are the things that all bring us into that connection, that presence, to then allow us to be a conduit for the Lord to be able to work through us. Because it takes us out of the way. So these are the habits of presence that we all need to focus on, on building in some fashion or another. And, and so as he kind of said in, in the video, this is the way that you do it. You know, you have that cue, you have that routine, you have that reward. So if I need to build a new habit, if I want to focus on, on figuring out how I can make my prayer life work for me, because there's not a cookie-cutter Christian approach. Each of us are wired a little bit differently thank the Lord, right? So how I pray and connect with the Lord will be very different than yours and very different from yours. The thing is, is we have to figure out, okay, so what is the cue? What is it that I'm going to respond to? What is it that, that starts that? And figuring out what that is, then what is the new routine that I have to do in order to be able to get that ingrained? Because ultimately, that reward has to be the same. I can't change the reward. For me, like when I pray, I have at the end of it, I just I feel so good. There's something that's so enriching about the times that I do it that I get kind of this little surge of dopamine in me that says, yes, do it again. The problem is, is I don't do it enough that way to have made it become a routine in the this is the way you're supposed to do it with your quiet time kind of way that we've kind of learned in evangelical circles. 
So I found a different one that works for me. Because I've still got to have that reward at the end of the day. It's the same thing for people that struggle with alcohol and drugs. If, if, if I have to find a new way to live because I can't respond to this when that brokenness is kind of coming up, then I have to figure out what's going to give me the same relief that I have in here because I can't turn to alcohol and drugs anymore. So I call a sponsor. I go for a, 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 I go for a prayer. I go to a meeting. I do something that gives me that same reward. And then I figure out over time that, yeah, it works. And then if I do it long enough, it becomes that unconscious habit. And studies have been shown that it takes about 66 days of repetition, of discipline, of conscious choice before it gets hardwired up here that I don't have to think or do it anymore. Now, some may take longer. Some may be a little bit shorter. But two months little over two months of solid work in order to get that connection. So don't give up. Don't be discouraged. It just takes time, but we have that ability to get to that place. Now, a quick little thing on um, we are broken, right? We are fallen. So it's not just kind of this magical thing that's in there. Because there is this thing that our habits, without his presence in our fallen nature, can turn even for us good Christian folk, it can turn to legalism, right? We can idolatrize the habit rather than the habit maker. We can let that get in the way. When we have habits that don't have any faith grounded into it, what I mean by that is they, they did an interesting study that they talked about in that, that Power of Habit book. And they talked with people who had been in long-term recovery, so they hadn't used in like three to five years, at least minimally in the study. And so they went, and, and these are folks then who had a relapse, where you thought, oh man, they've got it. They figured it out. They're, they're going to make it through, and they're going to they're gonna do it. And they, so they interviewed those folks, and they said, well, well, wait a minute. You had all these things going for you. You had figured it all out. And it seemed like you know, you'd established all these habits of, of sponsorship and meeting and prayer and groundedness, and, and it seemed all good. Why did it fall away? And what they found with those folks is they never really believed that those habits would save them. So if my habits aren't grounded in a belief that that is going to keep me continuously connected to the Lord, it's not going to stick. You may have a ritual, but is it going to deliver you? That's, Lord, I believe help my unbelief, right? Because I can't do it myself. It's not this automatic thing that I have the power to do on my own. That's why we need his presence in the first place. If it was that easy on our own, we would need the Lord in the first place, right? He wouldn't need to have to come here. So we've got to be able to have his presence in order for those to stick and stay and to be grounded. So... Um, just real quick, we're going to do a quick little dive into brain stuff because I, I find this so fascinating. But this is how habits work without his presence. When I have that God-shaped hole in here and I pursue habits for unhealthy reasons, that's what leads to addiction. That's what leads to, to sin and other kinds of things that take me into dark paths. So this is the brain scan of somebody of the normal brain up there in that upper left scan. You'll see that rich red area. That has to do with the release of a, a, a chemi brain chemical called dopamine. That is the, the brain chemical that is released 
when, um, when we've done something good. It's a surge of this positive stuff that says, yes, do it again. The Lord put it in us, you know, for those basic survival kinds of things that we, when we were hunters and gatherers and we needed to kind of provide for our own and live for ourselves. And, you know, at the end of the hunt, at the end of the harvest, there'd be this huge surge of dopamine that said, yes, do it again. And it marks that habit. And after a while, what happens over time is my brain says, oh, do this, get that. And that's that reward factor. So if for me, if I have started to use alcohol and drugs to take care of something like this, well, usually when I get a little shot of dopamine at the end of a little hunt, it goes, boop, boop, boop. Yes, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. When I pray, boop, do it again. When I introduce alcohol or drugs, it goes, burp, burp. Our grains, being the incredible machines that they are, say, you know what? I don't need to do as much on my own. Somebody else is bringing it into me. So that's going to be the surge. So I'm going to back down my own natural production of that. Because something else is coming along. So we rewire ourselves to do that. And so what you'll see, though, interestingly enough, is this is not just about alcohol and drugs in terms of what happens with our fallen nature. Because that upper right is the brain scan of somebody who is in a obesity problem, who's addicted to food. It's not just about the substance that I'm putting into my body. It's the neurobiology of what is happening in here and what that's doing for me in lieu of having a relationship with God that is driving that kind of stuff. It has to do with how we are made in his wonderful image. Now, the brain has this remarkable ability to recover it and take care of itself. We know that with abstinence, comes recovery. And my brain is able to start producing those natural dopamine hormones on itself. Well, good. Okay. So there's, there's healing. There's recovery, right? We know that works. Well, why do so many people relapse? You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he had been clean for 20-some years, got addicted to opiates again and ended up killing himself. It's because our brain is no longer our friend. If you remember Paul's word about why do I do the things that I don't want to do? It's because our brains have no longer become our friends. This is the brain skin of somebody with a 20-year cocaine history. Been clean and sober for two years. And so they put him in the brain scan machine and they just were showing them basic pictures of, of you know, kind of sunshine and puppy dogs at first. And so nothing is happening up here. And then they changed the pictures, and they started introducing pictures related to his cocaine use. You know, lines of cocaine and rolled-up dollar bills and freebasing stuff. And just by seeing pictures alone, look what happens to his brain. It just lights up on fire. Oh, yeah, please don't do that again. It's been a really stressful weekend. Please just do just one line of cocaine. That's all I ask you to do. And then you can go back to this recovery stuff. It's going to be really crazy right now. That's what an addict, an alcoholic, a shopaholic, a gamblingaholic, a Christaholic, when they're doing it in an unhealthy way. Brain reacts that way. It just lights up. Even though I don't want to do it, I'm doing everything right. My brain lights on fire. The only reason that it goes away towards the end at the bottom is because I know this is coming. I've learned in my recovery that this happens. And so the only reason that I get back to serenity when I get back to his presence is I know it's coming and I know how to handle it. I know what to do with it. I have to rewire 
and overwire this stuff, but it doesn't go away. It's always there. That's why we talk about one day at a time so much, is we have to build new habits over top of those old ones, but they never go away. And we have to also understand, we want to think that that um, back in the just say no days, we want to think that that these habits live up here with Judge Judy and her prefrontal cortex where right and wrong live. It doesn't. All of these habits live back here in our primitive brain where it doesn't have language. It doesn't have the ability to speak or verbalize or do anything like that. It's all in the subconscious part of our brain where our hunger and our thirst lives. That's where that pleasure and reward center is. So we're powerless, just like that that thing said, we're powerless to stop it. What we do with it, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. But we can't stop those cravings and those urges to come other than figuring out what triggers those and maybe trying to minimize those and get healing for those. But we have to understand that we can't willpower that stuff away. We have to understand that basic fundamental biology in terms of the way that the Lord made us. Because here's the beautiful thing about how we are aligned and wired. There's a beautiful uh, bunch of research done by Andrew Newberg. I would suggest you go to his website. It's fascinating stuff because he's looked at the religious brain. And hopefully no surprise to anyone here. He does this marvelous study where he's looking at a baseline brain and then a brain in active prayer. And you see where he talks about that orientation area. See how it goes from rich red to, you know, mostly yellow. This rich red has to do with blood flow and activity when it's just like a normal thing. And the reason that it goes to yellow is that when I'm in prayer, what he's he's saying is that our brains are no longer engaged in myself. Got it? I am now part of a transcendent thing. I am connecting to something bigger than myself. And when I go to something bigger than myself, I get out of the way. And so his summary was just fascinating and validating for me. The scientist says the main reason that God won't go away is because our brains won't allow him to leave. We are set up in such a way that God will always be there so that our brain can do its two main things self-preservation, and self-transcendent, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Who made us? Are we just a freak accident out of the pond? Or are we fearfully and wonderfully made? God is, I love that last sentence. Unless there's a fundamental change in how our brain works, God is going to be along for a very long time. If our worldview is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, not that we evolved out of a pond, then we know absolutely why that is what it is, right? Doesn't that make so much rich sense? So then we come to our community. When we come to the power of community, it has to do with this beautiful experience. There's no sound to this, so don't be freaked out. In Catalonia, Spain, every fall, they have this marvelous, fascinating festival where they build human castles, human towers, 
by their clans and by their neighborhoods. They come together every fall. You can see hundreds of people packed together, and the clans come together, and they form this rich, solid base. And the whole goal is to go as high as you can, stacking upon one another, using, as you can see, seven-year-olds to get to the highest top. And the thing is to get to the top, raise your hand, climb down, and disassemble without crashing to the earth. It's a fascinating depiction of what community is really all about, right? That when we come together, when we, we come together for that common purpose, when we are present and engaged in that kind of a way, that's the power of community. When we are connected with him, when our, our habits are aligned in such a way, then we accomplish those beautiful towers. We accomplish those beautiful things because we are connected with his presence. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, like we heard this morning, and you look at those habits of that community that is connected with his presence, understand that they are carrying out the Great Commission with the understanding that I am with you. I am here. I am manifesting myself now. So day by day, they were able to have that full devotion to Christ. They were able to anticipate. They were expecting miracles to happen. They were expecting supernatural work to occur. They had that commitment to one another to build that tower, not for Babel, but for the Lord, because it was based on him and based on his presence. You keep on reading through. They gathered. They celebrated. They had fellowship. They had laughter. They enjoyed all of that fellowship. They took care of one another. It wasn't about my property and your property. It was like, if you have need and I've got the ability to help, I'm going to help. If I have need, I have the ability to, without shame, bring it forward and get the support that I need. And there was this shared sense of purpose that God is going to continue to add and bring something up. So the body of believers, when we are connected, it really has kind of a triune kind of a thing. There is that upward focus. As long as we are keeping connected with his presence, then it's also about how we work within to be able to help us each become connected with his current and his future presence. And it also naturally spills over because if we're if we're experiencing his richness together, doesn't that change who you are? Doesn't that change your countenance? Doesn't that change your, your conversation? Doesn't that change your dominion? Change your stories? And how can not the people who are around you outside of this community not experience that, not be attracted to that? Want to know, I want to know what you have. Because I want what you have, and that's attractive to me. It's not about logos. It's not about websites. It's not about tweets. It's about experience of presence together. It's about attraction, not promotion. If it's focused on promotion, if it's focused on who's up here, then it's going to be a disappointment. If I'm attracted to the change, if I'm attracted to the presence, if I'm attracted to the community, that's what's real. That's what's grounded. That's what takes us places. 
and back to the brain one more time because I, I think this is just so fascinating. There's a couple more chemicals that get released. These are called the selfless chemicals. Dopamine is an addictive chemical. It is a selfish chemical. Endorphins are selfish chemicals. I didn't talk about that, but that's kind of the natural um, opiates in our body to be able to run marathons and endure and get through childbirth and get through the hunt and, and do those things. But there are two other main chemicals. One is called serotonin. These are released mostly in community. And think about why would God wire us this way? Why would God set this up? Well, when we experience a serotonin flood, it, it is kind of that, that thing of, well done, good and faithful servant. When you get that statement from a colleague, it releases this surge of dopamine, which makes you feel proud. Not in a sinful, prideful way, but from an, a, a, a cohesion and allegiance stand of way. And when I see other kinds of acts in that same way, I don't have to do, it's not selfish in the sense that I have to be told, you know, patted on the back, hey, that was a great sermon. Oh, good, serotonin. If I see other kinds of generosity that's going on, then that will release it too. Expressions of gratitude will release it too. But it builds that sense of cohesion. So when I see people walking through my doors, or I as a stranger am here, and I have, I swear to God, really, in a good way, um, you know, I've been here a number of times before um, as a visitor, as a guest. It is not uncommon to have at least three or four of you just come up to me and say, as strangers, hey, welcome, glad you're here. That releases this. That builds that connection. And God has that in that for a purpose in terms of how we work and how we do. But there's another one that's even more incredible, oxytocin. That's called the, it's called the cuddle drug. It's called the love hormone. It is most dominantly released with mothers and infants. When you are cuddling and bonding with your newborn, when you're um, breastfeeding, and, and it releases huge amounts of oxytocin. When we get hugs, it is released by this, by touch. It is released by expressions of gratitude. But when that is released and it is surged through us, it creates trust, it creates safety, it creates intimacy. It's like the garden, right? Again, who made us? Who designed us? Who wired us? Why would we get that? It's not a freak accident, right? So it's activated by kindness. It's activated by generosity. And interestingly enough, the more oxytocin that I have flooding in me, it lessens dopamine, and it fights addiction. Because it's connecting me more up with that, right? And the more that I'm connected up there, the less of me, and the less of me, the less I am likely to get trapped into those kinds of things. And so in wrapping up, there's an end in sight. So if you go back to the garden, and we talked about that for a little bit, you know, if you look at the original story of Adam and Eve, they were, it was, um, you know, we are created for community because it's not good for any of us to be alone. They were walking with God in the garden of the cool of the day. There was that community. There was that presence. And what were their two calls? What were they told to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What happened at the end of Matthew? What did Acts 2 do? You see the connection? 
Do you see the completion until the new heaven and new earth come? That we together, when we're devoted to fellowship, when we have that awareness of that he is with us, he's here now, always. It's my awareness of his always that's the problem. And that more comes when I'm in community. And when we have that, we're supposed to do the same thing as Adam and Eve. Go make disciples, all the nations. Fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It's all good. It's all the same. It's all wired to the same thing, right? And so the Acts chapter 2 church said, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It really is about as we are awoken to Christ, then we develop those habits of presence. As we have those habits of presence, that then fosters this community of presence, which brings out power and healing and connection, and that awakens others and attracts others to that combination and and pulls it all together. So when we are doing the things that God designed us, both biologically and spiritually, to accomplish and to achieve, Wonderful things can happen. I'm going to close with this story. Um, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to go to um, Haiti with uh, my son in his senior year um, for our, our youth group trip. And we happened to stop. One of our stops um, was at uh, Mother Teresa's Home for the Dying um, because they don't really have much of a, a healthcare system. So this is where people would go as they face terminal illness. So, you know, there were... 16 of us that were going there, um, kind of all scared to death, not really sure what we are going to be doing, um, thinking, you know, we're probably going to be working with these elderly folks. And we walked in there, and most of the people were 20, 30. Most of them had HIV and AIDS and were dying. The families had kicked them out, and they're just kind of ending their days there. And so we're sitting in the hallway. God, it's so uncomfortable. Um, and the nuns said, okay, we're going to need to split you up because the, the men are on the first floor, the women are on the second floor. And what we'd like you to do is to put lotion on them because in these end days, their skin you know, stops producing some of the natural oils that, that keeps us healthy. And so putting lotion on them uh, helps keep them comfortable. So the ladies went upstairs and... I was um, on the lower floor with with my guys. Um, And so they gave us all bottles of lotion. And um, so I was like, okay, time to go in. And the guys are like, kind of all walking behind me. And I'm just as uncomfortable. And so I'm just saying prayers to myself, prayers to myself. And I make eye contact with the gentleman on the first bunk. I don't speak Creole. He doesn't speak English. But he just waves me over lays down on the bed and pulls up his shirt and invites this white stranger into his space. And so I just started rubbing lotion on him. It was just such a, a surreal thing. And, and he then would kind of point to this area and point to this area. And, and so he was just kind of leading me, humbly, gracefully leading me to where comfort was necessary. And so I just, as I was doing that, and just was so overwhelmed by God's presence in that moment that I just had to start singing a hymn to myself. 
Um, and then I happened to look up and I saw all the boys, you know, nerdy, nervous, 14, 15, 16, 18 year olds walking to the others and doing the same thing. And he was just praying to God, just help me to hold on to this moment. Help me to bring that moment back to Midland so it's not just something that happens down there. And then what made it the most beautiful was um, all of a sudden, as we were all doing this, all of a sudden you could hear these beautiful voices from the second floor as the ladies in our group were taking care of the female patients. And they had started singing Amazing Grace. And it just came sweeping down the hallways and just flooded you with his presence. It's just a beautiful thing. But just don't run after that. That's what the power of presence can look like in community. That can happen every day. It can happen here. It can happen now if you just kind of hold on to those things. If you find ways to bring God to this level, it'll all be good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are here, that you want us connected with you, and that you have wired us in such a way that we can be woke to you each and every moment. And we just pray that you would work through us, with us, in us, and around us in a way that our community knows the difference and is attracted to you through this power. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Um, at this time, we'll invite our ushers to collect our morning offering. If you did fill anything out on the